one of the Bibles right in that pew. It's page 1012. We're almost to the end of the Bible, book of James. But we're going to be in chapter 5 together. And I need to help you understand what James has been talking about so that you will understand better what he's about to talk about. You see, what he has been talking about, if you go to chapter 5, verse 7, this is how you get your bearings, this is how you get your, your context. He writes in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, we need to understand what the word patient means. It means to suffer long under difficulty. Patience isn't just a term that parents use with their young children, although we do use it with that quite often. It really has a meaning that is quite powerful. It means to be able to suffer long in the middle of difficulty. So I would ask you if you're patient. And if you're patient, if you want to understand that, that's how you define it. Do I suffer long in the midst of difficulty? Am I able to bear up under it? Well, chapter 5, verse 8, he goes on. You also be patient. There's that same word again. Now he writes three words. It ought to be on everybody's t-shirt. Establish your hearts. How do you do that? That means turn the face of your heart towards what? He goes on. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. So endure a lot of difficulty. Bear up under it. Why? Because sooner or later, and we pray sooner, Jesus is coming. Either he's coming back or you're going to go meet him. It's called death. So bear up under that suffering. Be patient. And then he reminds us in verse 10 that you're not the only one that goes through difficulty. In fact, everybody does. And if you look through the Old Testament, you've got the prophets. You've got Job who suffered long under severe trials who are, verse 10, an example of suffering and patience. See, life is hard. It's very hard under the sun, to borrow Ecclesiastes terminology, on this earth. And suffering is the normative experience. We're all going to suffer. We're going to suffer emotionally. We're going to suffer physically. We're going to suffer spiritually and mentally. It is a normative experience. And if we're going to endure until the coming of the Lord, here's the key. This is what James is about to teach us. We have to help each other stay strong. Now, can we just be really, really honest? And I don't want you to take this as accusative. I don't mean to accuse you of anything. Let's just be honest. Some of you are not doing well with this. You don't help other people endure suffering. Well, I, I would say that sometimes it's because you're trying to endure it. And your nose, spiritually, is just about under the water. You're trying to stay afloat, and I get that. But you know what? I'm going to tell you from experience that the more you turn your eyes onto other people, the more you're going to find how wonderfully you actually float. Sometimes your suffering is not that bad when you're looking at other people. We need to get better at this. If we're going to learn to really be together, we need to learn how to help each other in this church called Cornerstone. So I'm really preaching right now 
to those who call this church your home. If you're visiting, thanks for coming. And I hope you carry what I'm about to tell you, about to teach you, back into your own home church. And if you're coming tonight for the first time in months or years, or, or maybe you're not sure if you have a church home, come on, let me invite you. Get back here. Get part of the church. Don't just attend. Learn how to help each other. And in order to learn that, James is going to give us what I'm calling the CPR course for Christian community. The CPR course for Christian community. Here's the first one. You ready? Really, really a simple message. Confess. Look at what he writes. Confess your sins to one another. Now, we're going to really take a look at this. But let me teach you what he's saying. Let's wind it back just a little bit. I think it's verse 13. It is. Is any one of you suffering? Is any among you suffering? If you're going through hard times, you're suffering. That's what the word means. It means go through difficulty. Life's hard. And when you go through hard times, here's what James says. you got to be praying. Your prayer life ought to be even better when you're going through hard times. How ironic for some Christians, their prayer life shuts down when they go through difficulty. I guess I'm, I'm thinking that they're holding God to blame. Well, this is the time that your prayer life really needs to get recharged, needs to get supercharged. And if you're cheerful, look what he says, verse 13, then you've got to sing God's praises. That's what it means to praise. You're singing God's praise. Why? Because it's God's grace that has helped you go all the way back to James 1.1. You see it on the screen. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You're not able to do that, and neither am I, through our own flesh's power. If you're able to count it all joy when you go through life's difficulties, that's, that's evidence of God at work in you. That's why you can praise God if you're cheerful. It's not just because, we you know, my life's going really well. My life's going really easily. No, James is talking to a group of people that are suffering. They're going through very much difficult life lives together. And he's saying, listen, if you're cheerful, you're there because God's enabling you to be there. So sing his praises. But for some people, and I would imagine for some of us even right here, hard times can make you sick. Look what it writes. You see that word sick? It's a word that means weak. Not that you're weak in a pejorative meaning, like as in you are just weak by nature. That's not what it means. It means that you've suffered so much, you've suffered so long, that it has sapped the strength from you. And James said, now if you're there, not just suffering, not just going through hard times, not cheerful because you're in the middle of it, by God's grace you've got joy. No, if it has sapped your strength and you're weak, now you're sick and you need to call the elders of the church, verse 14. See, the word call carries a tone of very serious urgency. That's what that word means in the Greek. So where the person was too sick to get to the elders, these are men appointed by God to lead and care for our church, well then the elders got to get to the sick. You got to call them. And here's what elders do, Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourself, Paul writes to the elders at Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you elders. What has he made you to do? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God cares very deeply about his church. It's his blood-bought possession. You know what he paid for the church? The blood of his son. He cares a lot about it. So he's given us elders. I'm one of them. We've got several of them in our church. And our job is to care for you. And if you're too weak to come to the elders, you simply call with urgency for the elders to come to you. Now, you might be wondering, well, this does have the connotation of physical sickness, not just spiritual sickness, it's physical sickness as well. Why didn't James say, get to the doctor? Call the doctor. Well, you need to understand the mindset of a Jewish believer back in, then, back in that day. They would go to the rabbi before the doctor every time. And they would be anointed with oil by the rabbi, which was not a sacrament, meaning the oil was not the means through which God restored somebody to health. It was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of the Spirit of God's power to heal, to refresh the weary heart. And so they would go to the elders or call the elders to them, or the Jewish believers would go to the rabbis to be anointed by oil and prayed over. That's what we do. As elders. And the elders are praying for the person's healing who is possibly sick. Look at verse 15. Because of unconfessed sin. You see this sin sickness connection in verse 15. And if he has committed sin he will be forgiven. This is a very real problem for a lot of us. And we need to just take ownership of it. You know years ago I was called to the hospital. Easton Hospital. I don't think I'll ever forget this. Somebody in our church had met a family that had never been to our church. And they said, Pastor Tim, you don't know this family, but would you be willing to go to Easton Hospital? They have a two-year-old little boy who is dying, and the doctors have no reason, no understanding why he's dying. Now, you can imagine being a pastor, I would think, and, or being anybody, and being called to go to and step into that kind of a crisis. That is, that is hard. So all the way over there, I'm praying, and I walk into the halls of Easton Hospital, and I walk down there, and I meet the mother first. The father was in by the son's bedside, and he comes out and joins us, and all I know to do is pray. I don't know what else to do. I didn't want to give them false assurance. I simply prayed and pleaded with God to save. I left. That friend who goes to our church calls me just a few hours later and says, you're not going to believe this, but... About two hours after you left, that little boy started to improve. And guess what? She called me the following day. He just got discharged from the hospital. Now, I don't have the gift of healing. If I did, I would live in a hospital. I don't know why people who think they have the gift of healing don't do that. It's, I never understood that. I don't have the gift of healing. I have the ability to pray. And guess what? You do too. And I simply brought that little boy to Christ and asked him for help. You know what really happened? Do you want to know why I believe that little boy almost died? While his mother was a Christian, his father wasn't. And a couple months after that miracle, his father came to know Jesus and put his faith in Christ for salvation. I think that was the reason that that entire thing happened. See, I'm confident... 
that God sometimes will reveal that beneath a sickness, beneath a health issue, is a sin that is not confessed. There's a spiritual issue that is going on. So verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another. Well, now he's switching. It's not just the elders anymore. Now, James says, let's live this way in the church. Confess your sins to one another. Now, what does the word confess mean? If this is what we're to do then we better learn what it means so that we can do it well. And I'm going to tell you that the word confess biblically has two parts to it. Most people know the first, if they know that, and they don't know the second. First, confess means to acknowledge or agree with God. It means to acknowledge or agree with God. Picture you being a parent and your little toddler has done something that uh, they know they, ha- they should not have done. And you know because you saw them do it. And you're trying to parent redemptively. So it's not just you're going to drop down to discipline. You want to teach them how to repent. You want to teach them how to confess. So you bring that little child onto your lap. And you say, what did you do? Did you do this? And now you're going to, as a parent, get a really good peek at that little boy or that little girl's heart. Are they going to acknowledge it? Are they going to agree with what they they have done? Let me give you a little bit more earthy metaphor of confession. If you have a car, your car probably, I would think, if it's running well, has a radiator. Or it's not going to run very well. And you want to put some fluid, some coolant into your radiator. So you open the cap. Best to do this when the car is running. So the car is running and you pour some coolant in. And you find out, wow, that was really low. I'm putting a lot of coolant into this. And when that coolant makes it to the top, you're going to watch something really interesting happen. And that is you're going to watch some bubbles start coming up to the surface. It's got to get the air lock out of the system. You've got to get the air out of the system. Now, I want you to hold that image in your mind for a second. I'm going to tell you of an illustration that the Chicago evangelist D.L. Moody once gave in an outdoor evangelistic crusade. He said this to the entire audience. He holds up a glass, just a drinking glass, and he says to the audience, how can I get the air out of this glass? Somebody shouts up from the audience, siphon it out with a pump. Moody replied, well, that would create a vacuum and that would shatter the glass more than likely. And then Moody smiled and he picks up next to it a pitcher of water and he holds up that glass and he begins pouring that water from the pitcher into the glass until the water gets to the rim of the glass and he turns to the entire audience and he says, there, all the air is removed. Now, I want you to combine that illustration, I'm going to teach you what confession means, with the radiator bubbling up the air, and it's going to provide for you what happens in our lives, in our hearts, when we're filled by the Spirit. If you really want to learn to confess biblically, then you walk with the Spirit, because you're going to find that the Spirit of God fills you as you walk with Him, and as it fills you, what comes bubbling up to the surface is the acknowledgement and the agreement, what I just said what I just did is sin and I don't want it see the spirit fills you first it bubbles that sin to the surface and that's called confession you begin to agree with God you begin to acknowledge you don't justify you don't explain it away you don't blame shift you simply are telling God what God has already been telling you through the spirit 
See, to confess sin is to admit our guilt. And at the same time, to joyfully breathe a sigh of relief that Jesus paid for those sins that just bubbled up. He paid for those in his death on the cross. This is not to be miserly. This is not to be miserable, rather, in your guilt. This is to be joyful because Jesus paid for those. I don't need to flagellate my soul. Be careful how you define that word. I don't need to beat myself up. Why would I? The Father already inflicted the Son for every sin I've committed. See, that confession has interfered with my relationship with my God. And it needs to be removed so that we can have fellowship again. And those bubbles of admission, those acknowledgments, and those agreements lead to the second meaning of confession from the Bible. And it means this, and most people don't know this, and this is really important. It means to cast or to throw. It's not just that you agree with it. You've got to do something with it. You've got to throw it. You've got to cast it upon Christ. Now listen, friends, you don't atone for your own sin. You know that, right? You don't see one of those bubbles come up and say, God, I see it now. Now I've got to work even harder to please you. Now I've got to go to church even more. If I'm Catholic, now I've got to say Hail Mary's eight times. And now that sin is atoned for. How ridiculous is that? You couldn't atone for your sin in the first place. You're not going to atone for it now. But God can atone for it. And he did. And his son, Jesus. Christian, do you truly understand that every sin... I'm really asking you if you get this. Not here in your mind. I think most of you get what I'm about to tell you in your mind. But until it gets down in your heart, it will not unlock you for the freedom of Christian living. Do you truly understand that every sin you have ever committed, those that you are committing, those that you will commit in the future, every one of those has been laid on Christ when he died on that cross. The Father will hold you accountable for none of them do you truly understand that well how can that be we're told in romans 4 which quotes genesis 15 6 abram believed this is abram before he became abraham believed the lord and he credited it to him as righteousness have you ever thought through that interesting word credited you can understand this, I think, very well. When you use a credit card today, just think right now. When's the last time you used a credit card? Maybe it was today. I did. I went and got something today, or yesterday, actually, from the store. I got gas. When you use your credit card, you are buying today what you will pay for later. And it is guaranteed by the credit card company. So you, you understand how that works. You're buying today. You, you insert that card. If it's got a chip, you put it in the chip reader. You're buying today what you will pay for later. But it's guaranteed by a credit card company. Now bring all of that same concept into that verse. Abram believed God. This is thousands of years before Christ died on the cross. And the later payment that Christ would make on that cross in his death guaranteed Abram's forgiveness, made him right with God. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. Faith was the insertion of the, chip in the credit card into the chip reader. 
But we live on this side of the cross, 2,000 years later almost. And now the spiritual payment for our sins was put in the bank. When Christ died on the cross, he atoned for our sins, he paid for it. That check cleared the bank in his resurrection. That's why the resurrection is so powerful. Paul writes, he argues, if the resurrection never happened, Christian, you're still in your sins. There was no payment that cleared the bank. So being on this side of the cross, a spiritual payment was put into the bank of God's righteous justice and holiness. And now checks can be written every time we sin. There's already a check written. It covers that. So we can get to 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yet James writes back to chapter 5. We're to confess our sins to one another. Why? Why isn't it good enough to just go find a priest if you're Catholic or an elder or a pastor if you're Protestant? Why to one another? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lost his life in World War II and the Nazis, who's quite a prolific theologian, he tells us why. He writes this, Confession is the presence of a brother in the presence of a brother, is the profoundest kind of humiliation. Oh, it hurts. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. To stand there before a brother or a sister as a sinner is a deep, deep disgrace that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man does a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. This is why so many of us, we just blithely, superficially, and generally say, yeah, I had a rough week, a lot of sin. Well, those aren't concrete. That's not confession. That's softening the blow. You want to deal a death blow to your pride. You want to reduce your pride and increase your humility. And then find a Christian brother or sister. Make it the same gender that you trust that is a godly person. And you let them know exactly what has been bubbling up to the surface. You will find your pride diminishing. And you will find your joy and your humility. There is great, great power in defeating sin in our lives when we confess it to a, a trusted Christian friend who will then go to the throne of mercy, of God's mercy, Hebrews chapter 10, with you in prayer. Do you want to know why? I'm going to tell you right now. I hope you believe this. I know this from my own life and I know this from countless counseling sessions. If you want to know why you cannot defeat sin... It is almost assuredly true that you're not confessing it. Not to somebody in the church. You want sin to lose its hold over you, learn the first C in CPR, and that is confess. And it leads us to the very second one in the CPR exercise. Pray. James went on, pray for each other so that you may be healed. So look at verses 13 through 18 with me for a moment. Look at every single verse. You're going to see the subject being prayer. Every one of them. 
What is that telling you, Christian? If you're reading this on a Monday morning and this is where your quiet time, your personal devotion is, and you're reading, you, you need to stop. You need to say, wait a minute. I just noticed, in fact, I just underlined or highlighted. There's the word pray or prayer in every one of these verses. That's like a light going on. This is what James is talking about. We've got to learn to pray. And who do we pray for? Pray for each other so that you may be healed. Prayer is the key. For every Christian going through difficult trials. Now rewind with me back to verse 14. I want to show you one more thing about the elders praying and anointing the sick person with oil. The physical health of fellow believers is the symptom in this context. The physical sickness is the symptom. But the elders are to discern if that illness has been brought about by unconfessed sin. I'm going to say that again. This is so wildly different than what most of us understand that I've got to really take pains to make sure you get it. When somebody is sick, elders must practice discernment. Are they sick because of unconfessed sin? This is what we do when we anoint somebody with oil. We go on a heart journey. We talk about sin. Now hang on, because some of you are like, I don't know if I like this. Verse 15, quite an incredible claim. Look at it with me. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now keep it in context. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So we've got the sickness, and we've got sins that James is bringing together. He's writing for believers whose faith was struggling And here he says, if sin, notice the preposition if, if sin is the cause of the illness and that person confesses that sin, listen, then the elders can pray confidently for healing. If they're sick because of sin and the elders can discern it and lead them into confession, listen, we can pray confidently for healing. Because there's often a sin-sickness connection in our lives. I'm going to prove it to you. Jesus said of the paralytic in Luke 5, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And then he healed him. Another time he healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. John chapter 5. He said to that man, Sin no more. Catch what he writes now. John writes that nothing worse may happen to you. The Apostle Paul wrote of anyone who wrongfully observes the Lord's Supper. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is why many of you are weak and sick, physically ill, and some have even died. John says there's a sin unto death. God treats it pretty seriously when we sin. You want to know why God treats it so seriously? I'm going to give you a reason, two reasons. One, it robs the unfettered relationship that he enjoys with you because sin robs you of that fellowship and of that peace. But sin secondarily robs you more than or equally to the fellowship of the peace. You cannot enjoy life if there is unconfessed sin in your, in your heart. You're going to find your joy is gone. You're going to find you've got to scramble every day spiritually. And you wonder, why is this so hard? It used to be so easy. But the Bible is equally clear. Here's your balance. That not every sickness. Don't walk out of here going, man, I just sneezed. Did I just sin? 
Not every sickness comes from suffering. Not every suffering comes from personal sin. The book of Job, you can't read that without making that point clear, as well as the time the disciples asked Jesus about a man born blind, John chapter 9. Rabbi, they said, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus, I think, wanted to smack them. He said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. This didn't come from sin. This is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So you need to know that not all physical illness, not all sickness comes because of personal sin. But listen, sometimes it does. And for some to be healed, the underlying sin must be dealt with first. And I'm going to show you the quintessential verse in the Old Testament for this. It's Psalm 32. David writes, For when I kept silent about my sin, I did not confess it. The bubbles were coming up, and I didn't give it to the Lord. I didn't agree. I didn't cast. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. This is physical. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as, the, as, as by the heat of summer. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is the example. And let's include every one of us. Is there unconfessed sin in your life right now? Unrepentant sin in your life? At some level, you can intersect with Psalm 32. This is your life, and it will get worse. Why? So that you will turn back to God. And James illustrates this principle that some sicknesses come from sin by bringing Elijah into the conversation. And if you remember Elijah, he lived in a day, he was a prophet, when all of Israel turned away from God, or almost all of Israel did. And God brought to Israel a drought so severely that the land, the people, the animals were sickened. But after the confrontation on Mount Carmel, when, when, God, when, when Elijah, through the power of God, defeated 800 false, 850 false prophets, the entire Israel people confessed their sin of faithfulness, that very day, here comes the rain back to heal the land from its sickness. The underlying problem of sin was dealt with, so here God can bring healing and restoration. This is a picture of some of our lives. If you're dried up, if you are joyless, one of the things you must look at, Christian, is not where is God? Did he walk away from me? Has he abandoned me? Has he forsaken me? He promises he never will. The problem is, likely, there is sin in you that you've not yet confessed. And for most cases, we are to pray for one another not the elders. You know, you, you call on the elders for the urgent cases, according to the Greek. But for most cases, all we need is just to reach out to somebody, confess those sins, and the response. Listen, if somebody reaches out to you and they confess to you what, bubbles, what is bubbling to the surface, your response better not ever be, you know what, it's really not that big of a deal. I think God's okay. Are you kidding me? God hates sin. 
And if it's bubbling to the surface because the, the Spirit of God is filling, He is moving that sin out of the heart. Why? So that He can bless that person, bring that person back into fellowship. Your response then is to take that person to the throne of mercy and pray and make sure and ask questions. Is there any more unconfessed sin in there? It's robbing you of life. And I love you enough to ask. And that leads us to verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What's the third one and the final one? The R in the CPR it means to rescue. And you get this from verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Life is hard, friends. Just sheer statistics would tell us that there are some young people right here, right now, listening to this message that will one day wander away from the truth. God forbid it is any of you. But sheer statistics will also tell you that some of the adults here right now, you're hanging on to your faith by your fingernails, spiritually speaking. And I don't know how much longer you're going to make it. Here comes the body around you on a rescue mission. See, the church needs to be a community that takes care of one another, that keeps us from wandering. That word wander gives us our word planet. It means to roam or go astray. Chapter 4 of James, this is what the devil does. His name means the one who separates. He goes all Hansel and Gretel on us. He drops little seed crumbs of candy-flavored temptation to sin all along and off the path. It will go off the path of wisdom until you have been wandering off of it so far you don't know how to get back. Well, how are you going to make it back? James says, my brother, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, are you willing to go out and get him? See, errors in truth lead to moral errors. If you're going to lose doctrinal truth, it will not take long for your life to morally reflect it. And, and be, truth is not just something we believe, it is something that we do. You live truth. It is evident in your life, which is why Paul wrote to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself, the way you're living, and on your doctrine, on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So listen, if I'm going to start preaching just slightly off of truth, who am I going to impact? It's going to be you. So how do we save our hearers? How do we go back? How do we go and bring him back from roaming from the truth? Well, let me tell you this. Literally, to bring him back means to turn someone back from the error to the truth. You've got to turn them back. You don't do that just by silent acknowledgement. Because you're too afraid to speak. You do this through speaking. And you do it through speaking in such a way that your life of love for that person has undergirded it. It provides a bridge for them to hear this truth from you. If, you don't, if that person isn't convinced that you love them, they're not going to listen to your truth. 
This is why we've got to be living among one another, together in the church, confessing to one another, praying for one another. So when you go to speak truth, there's a foundation that can support the weight of what you're saying to a person that right now doesn't really want to hear it. We've got to hold firmly to our faith. Why? Because we're all prone to loosening our grip on it. Every single one of us, and there's nothing as effective as prying your fingers off the faith as life difficulty. This is why the world's interest cannot be allowed to separate us from gathering together. Listen, if your life is too busy to regularly worship together, to be involved in a life group together, to serve in a ministry together... I'm just simply going to say it. Your life's too busy. You're robbing yourself of power. If you have children watching you, you're teaching them that the world is at least on par with the church in importance and maybe even a little bit more. There should be nothing more important than learning to live together. You're not going to make it to the end of your faith journey without each other. This is why Hebrews says in chapter 12, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one, you know what, your job is just as relevant as mine in making sure that nobody in this congregation misses the truth of God. It's not just pastors that do this. It's our job to facilitate that. It's our job to encourage you to that. It's our job to teach you to do that, to model it for you. But if it's just pastors doing that, what a wildly ineffective church that's going to be. This is a call to every single Christian. And contrary to Cain's flippant response to God, we are each other's brother's keeper or sister's keeper. We are responsible in part for each other's endurance and faith. This is why we confess to each other. This is why we pray for each other. Why? Because unconfessed sin leeches joy from your faith. And joyless faith is one step removed from a dead, powerless faith. Let me tell you what some people have said. When I have taught this, They are privatistic people. They don't like anyone telling them what to do. And they say to me, who has the right to go tell a wandering brother or sister what to do? And the one who lacks joy will say to me, well, why bother? What does it matter? The one who is apathetic, who cares? If God wants him back, God will bring him back. The one who is worldly will say, I'm too busy. I don't have time. The one who loves Jesus will always leave the 99 and go after the one. That's what separates the one walking with Christ to the one walking in the world. And it leads us to our final verse, verse 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let me just super quickly explain this. The word sinner always in the Bible refers to a non-believing person. So the mindset here in James, I believe, is the person that comes to church every Saturday evening, every Sunday morning, regularly even comes and serves at our Thanksgiving outreach, does mulch madness, does all of the activities with us, but they've never really been among us. They've never truly given their lives to Christ. You know there's people here that are like that. Just sheer statistics. 
You want to know my greatest fear? I hope you understand my heart. My greatest fear is not that some of you are going to die what we would call prematurely. It's horrible. I don't want that. Pray against that. My greatest fear is you're going to think that you're a Christian all of your life, and you're going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to say, get away from me. I never, ever knew you. There is nothing more terrifying to me. How can you listen to the preaching of the word of God week after week after week, yet sit there in self-deception thinking, I'm a Christian, I'm a good person, but you've never given your life to Christ. There's evidence for that, and you're not seeing it. Are you a Christian? Have you given up on your own morality? Have you thrown it away as useless? And have you in joyful faith embraced the death and the resurrection of Christ, saying, that alone can save me. God, that's what I want. Would you forgive me because of Jesus? And you don't count on your goodness any longer. That's it. If you have not done that, then you're still a sinner, according to James. And when you leave and wander away from the truth, because it was palatable for a while, it was cool for a while, but now it's asking too much of me, so I'm just going to wander out of the church, and I'm going to wander off the path, and I'm going to wander away. Somebody has to go get them. And it needs to be you, and it needs to be me. And if you do that, you will save his soul from death or her soul from death. And you will cover a multitude of sins because all of their sins and their confession of faith in Jesus will be submerged under his blood. During his early teen years, Robert Robinson lived in London. He wrote a song that we sing called Come the Fount. He was part of a gang at 17 years old, but then he heard the great evangelist, one of my favorites, George Whitfield, preach. And he put his trust in Christ, and soon he felt called to become a pastor of a Baptist church in Cambridge, England. And despite his young age, Robinson, Robert Robinson, became known as, a, as an effective minister, a songwriter, and a theological book author. At 23 years old. His later life, however, was filled with difficulty after difficulty, trial after trial. And it began to loosen his fingers on his bold, what was once bold statement and confession of faith. And one day he, was, he met a woman. He got into a, a chariot or a wagon, rather. He got into a wagon trying to get a ride. And he sat there with another woman in the wagon. And he looked and she's studying a hymnal. And she asked how he liked the hymn that she was humming. And in tears, Robinson replied, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man that wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Are you singing it in your mind? Most of you are familiar with it. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do you want to know how God seals that heart? Well, I told you recently in a sermon in this series that he takes his hands and puts them over your hands. 
and he holds them fast to the confession of your faith when the merry-go-world of life wants to throw you off. That's one way he does it, by his own personal power. But you want to know how else he does it? When people in your own church come around you and you can confess those bubbles of sin to them and they will love you through it. And they begin to pray for you and take you to the throne of mercy and convince you again just how great the Father's love is for you. And they walk away as far as it needs to go to get you back from your wandering. That's what it means to be together. That's the CPRs. Confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, and restore the one who wanders from truth. Are you ready to live like that? Are you ready to live like that? That's the only acceptable way to live in the church. Let's pray.